We're going to be reading this morning from 2 Kings 18. 2 Kings 18. Before we read that, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we know that you were called a friend of sinners and tax collectors. And we praise you for it. For such were we before you called us. And we pray that as you've given us your holy word, that you would treat us as your friends, laid upon our hearts, and lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Kings chapter 18, starting in the first verse. In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old, and he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, for up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not cease to follow him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses, and the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. From watchtower to fortified city, he defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory. In King Hezekiah's fourth year, which was the seventh year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, marched against Samaria and laid siege to it. At the end of three years, the Assyrians took it. So Samaria was captured in Hezekiah's sixth year, which was the ninth year of Hosea, king of Israel. The king of Assyria deported Israel to Assyria and settled them in Hala, in Gozan, on the Haber River, and in the towns of the Medes. This happened because they had not obeyed the Lord their God, but had violated his covenant, all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. They neither listened to the commands nor carried them out. In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. So Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent this message to the king of Assyria at Lachish. I have done wrong. Withdraw from me, and I will pay whatever you demand of me. The king of Assyria exacted from Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. So Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace. At this time, Hezekiah, king of Judah, stripped off the gold with which he had covered the doors and doorposts of the temple of the Lord and gave it to the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria sent his supreme commander, his chief officer, and his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. They came up to Jerusalem and stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. They called for the king. Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to them. The field commander said to them, Tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria, says. And what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have strategy and military strength, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look now, 
You are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff which pierces a man's hand and wounds him if he leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. And if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. How can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you are depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this place without word from the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, and Shebna and Joah said to the field commander, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people on the wall. But the commander replied, Was it only to your master and you that my master sent me to say these things? And not to the men sitting on the wall who, like you, will have to eat their own filth and drink their own urine? Then the commander stood and called out in Hebrew, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you from my hand. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me. Then every one of you will, will eat from his own vine and fig tree and drink water from his own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey. Choose life and not death. Do not listen to Hezekiah. For he is misleading you when he says the Lord will deliver us. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the guards of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim, Hena, and Eva? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries has been able to save his land from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But the people remained silent and said nothing in reply because the king had commanded, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him what the field commander had said. It's been, as we come into the life of Hezekiah, it's been 255 years since David died. And for 255 years, we have we have dealt with inferior kings. Now, some kings were far more inferior than other kings, but all 32 kings that we've looked at since David have been, have been less than ideal to one degree or another. We, we've seen them fall short one by one by one of the standards set by David. And 255 years is quite a long time. But now we come into some relief. Finally, after two and a half centuries, we have a good king, King Hezekiah. Hezekiah is the son of Ahaz, and Ahaz was about as bad as it got. But now Hezekiah will be about as good as it gets. And he's, he's referred to as a good king who walks in all the ways of his father David. He's not just a better king. He's not just a better king compared to other kings. He's a genuinely good king. The author refers to him as a good king. And since the author is inspired by God, this tells us that God views Hezekiah as a good king. 
So after 255 years of kings that are meh, or kings that are really bad, or kings that are good, but, finally we come to our first good king. But what makes Hezekiah good? Well, the author really tells us about that in verses 1 to 8. We'll take the passage before us in three chunks. First, verses 1 to 8, and then we'll look at verses 9 to 16, and then we'll finish with verses 17 to 37. And so we come into the the first eight verses here and we consider what it is that makes Hezekiah to be a good king. We see really three things. The first is that Hezekiah hates idols, that Hezekiah trusts God, and that Hezekiah obeys God. Other kings had been too timid, distracted, or wicked to really deal with Israel's idolatry problem. Some of them had done away with some idols, but none of them had had the zeal which the Lord really requires. The Lord requires that idols be dealt with viciously, that they be dealt with without giving them any quarter or any peace. There can be no room for idolatry anywhere among God's people. And all the rest of the kings had left, even some of them, just a sliver of room for idolatry, but not Hezekiah. Hezekiah declares total war on his idols. Wherever he finds them, he destroys them. If they're on hills, they're torn down. If they're in valleys, they're destroyed. Whether it be wooden trees or stones or altars or false temples, they're burned and smashed and broken and torn down. Wherever Hezekiah finds idols, they are completely destroyed. Hezekiah is a radical. In fact, Hezekiah is a radical's radical. And you see just how extreme Hezekiah is when you look at verse 4. Verse 4 speaks about the bronze snake, the bronze snake which Moses had made. We're, we're about 1,200 years after Moses at this point. Now, now, people, you need to read your Bibles. You need to read your Bibles because when, you, when you're reading through a book like Kings and you come across the, the talking about this bronze snake, you shouldn't, have to think, you shouldn't have to think, well, what is this bronze snake? What does this mean? You should be able to read your Bible because the more you read the Bible, the better you'll read your Bible. And so if you, if you hop back to the time of, of Moses, you should even read the, the long, obscure books like Numbers. You go back to the time of Moses into Numbers 21, and the Israelites are on their journey wandering from Egypt to the Promised Land, and they're kind of doing loop-de-loops for 40 years. And they were grumbling in Numbers 21, against the Lord and against Moses. And what were they grumbling about? Well, you brought us out of Egypt. You'd think that would be a good thing. They cried out to be brought out of Egypt, but now they want to go back because in Egypt they had different kinds of food and water. So the Lord becomes angry with them and He sends fiery serpents to them and people are bitten by these fiery serpents and they begin to die. Well, Where do the people turn when they want deliverance? They turn to the same Moses and God which they had grumbled against. They say, well, you need to save us. The Lord says to Moses, make a a bronze pole and a bronze serpent and put the serpent on the pole and lift it up. Whenever someone is bitten and they look at the snake, they will be healed. And so they were. And so 1,200 years later, this snake is still hanging around. Now, wouldn't that be a cool thing to have? I mean, if this was still around, this would be the, the relic of all relics in the best of the museums. This is, this is the, the relic that all the museums would be fighting over. And if you, were, if you were a person living in Judah, being able to look 
at this thing which Moses had made, which is found in the book of the law of Moses, and which had saved your fathers from death, being able to look at this, that would have been an incredible thing. Just imagine if you had this in your house. right? You, you put this bronze snake on the, on the mantle and somebody walks in and says, well, what is that? Oh, that's, that's just the bronze snake that Moses made in the wilderness. And they, they have access to this bronze snake, but there's a problem. The problem is that it had become an idol. Or at least it had become an accessory to idolatry. So what does Hezekiah do? Does he confiscate it? Kind of like when you take a, a toy away from a young child and you hide it and say, you can have it back when you can play nice. No, he destroys it. Can you imagine? Destroying something that Moses had made at God's command. He destroys it. He reduces it. He throws it into a brook. You might say that, you might say that Hezekiah took it a little too far, that he was, he was a little bit too extreme here, but that's not what God says. God says that he held fast to the Lord. Even if it means destroying 1,200-year-old mosaic artifacts and items of salvation, idolatry is to be resisted at all costs. And the same extremism Jesus expresses very plainly in the Gospels. I think a familiar passage to many of us would come from Mark 9. Jesus would have been very proud of Hezekiah. Jesus in, in Mark 944 to 47 says if your hand causes you to sin cut it off it is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire and if your foot causes you to sin cut it off it is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell and if your eye causes you to sin tear it out it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell I've heard a lot of excuses about this passage over the years. Well, 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 let's just figurative. Maybe in some sense that's true, but it's not exaggerated. Would you rather go to heaven with one hand or hell with two? I would rather have the former than the latter, and I suspect the vast majority of you would as well. Jesus teaches us to deal radically with our sin, which would lead us to destruction, and to come nearer to God who gives salvation. And Paul says the same thing, that we are to deal viciously with our sin. Paul says this in his, in his letter to the Colossians, chapter 3, verses 5 to 8, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put away... Now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Put it away. Put it to death. Cut it off. You get the idea. Whatever it is that leads to sin is to be destroyed, no matter what it is. There are things that are good in and of their own right. Bronze snakes made by Moses, that's a, a good thing, but it's no longer a good thing if it leads to idolatry. Phones or computers, those are very good things to have. But if they lead to idolatry or to immorality, they are better to be done away with. Girlfriends or boyfriends or fiancés, these, these are all good things in some way. But if they lead us into sin, if they lead us away from the Lord, they are to be done away with. It is far better to have no boyfriend or girlfriend, to have no phone, tablet, or computer, and no bronze snake and have God 
than to have all those things and not have God. And so Hezekiah was faithful. But lest we think that Hezekiah is the Messiah we've been waiting for, uh, a story of his weakness is told then as you come into the next few verses, verses 9 to 16. Hezekiah does what is right. He, he says that we, we read that he broke his alliance with Assyria. His father Ahaz had made a deal with Assyria, which had kept Assyria at bay for a time. And the Assyrians had stayed away, but now Hezekiah breaks the alliance with Assyria, this, this massive world superpower. And Hezekiah does it, and it's right. The Lord had told the Israelites that they were not to, that they were not to rely on, on any foreign powers for help. They were to trust God for help. Don't make any alliances with pagans, but you, you trust me. And so Hezekiah trusts the Lord. And Hezekiah knows good and well that this is going to bring trouble. And sure enough, it brings trouble. Sennacherib comes to Judah. And he does kind of a, a blitzkrieg. He marches right through Judah, capturing city after city after city. We, we know this because it's recorded even in, in secular history. Sennacherib, uh, he, he boasts in his records that he captured 46 fortified cities. He took over 200,000 people captive. And, and I quote, I shut, up, I shut up Hezekiah in his city like a bird in a cage. And so he does. Now what does Hezekiah do when he comes to be shut up in his city like a cage? Well, Hezekiah blinks. And he cuts a deal. He makes a deal as it is with the devil. And the king of Assyria was about as near to the devil as a human being can get. He makes a deal with the devil and he offers to pay Sennacherib off so that he will go away. And in doing so, his faith gives way to fright. And he compromises disappointing isn't it you have a good king he does the right thing but when push comes to shove he undoes the right thing but I suspect there's more than a few of us here that can relate that can relate to the moment when push comes to shove and our faith gives way to fright I would guess that there's just a little bit of Hezekiah in more than just a few of us but as you move into the final verses, those final 21 verses, 17 to 37, you see that Hezekiah's faithless, faithless effort to get the Assyrians to go away doesn't work very well. And Sennacherib comes back. Sennacherib is kind of like the school bully. Right? He, he walks around. He's the 14-year-old he's the who's been held back all these years, and he's in the sixth grade. And so he's He's twice the size of everybody else. And he goes, around, he goes around beating everybody up unless they'll give him their lunch money. And so he comes to little, little Hezi, little Hezekiah, and he says, give me your lunch money, right? And Hezekiah, uh, he resists at first, and he says, okay, okay. And he, he empties his pockets. He takes all the money that his father had given him, and he pays off the bully. But then what does he do? Well, Sennacherib, the school bully, comes right back. He's going to go give... He's going to go give Hezekiah the beatdown or the swirly that he was going to give him anyways. You guys know what a swirly is? Right? This was, the, this was the bully tactic du jour when I was in high school. You would, take, you would take some poor sap and you would turn him upside down, you'd carry him to the bathroom, and you'd stick his head in the toilet and you'd flush it. That's very tame compared to what Sennacherib is threatening to do and will indeed do to Hezekiah if Hezekiah does not submit. And so Sennacherib comes back like this bully 
and he doesn't want, he doesn't want the money anymore, which is just fine, because Hezekiah doesn't have any more to give him. Sennacherib wants total, complete, and utter surrender. He will settle for nothing less. And Hezekiah finds himself in a bind, because Hezekiah knows what happens to kings of captured countries. When the Assyrians come into a country or into a city, they take the king or the governor or whatever it is, and they impale his body on a stake, and they put the stake outside the gate so that everybody who comes in will know that this man is no longer king. But there is, as they say, a new sheriff in town, and that's the fate that seems to await Hezekiah. The Assyrians were masters, masters at psychological warfare. They knew that it was much easier and much cheaper to get a city to surrender than it was to surround it for years and starve it to death. And so they would do whatever it took to try to convince different cities and different countries to surrender. And so here they come, and the, the Assyrians make two speeches that we need to pay attention to. And the two speeches are given first to Hezekiah, and then second to all the people who are able to listen, who were servants or subjects of Hezekiah. And the, the first speech given in verses 19 to 25 has one very clear theme. Give up. Give up, Hezekiah. You don't have any hope. And as you read that speech, you see that there's a, number of, there's a number of things that they speak of being hopeless. The Egyptians are hopeless. They cannot help you. That was true. And then he says as well, your army is hopeless. Even if I gave you 2,000 horses, you don't have enough men to put on the horses to fight me. And then he says, your God is hopeless. And this is a very clever ploy. Even he says, has not your God sent me to attack you? And he says, what have you done, Hezekiah? But you have torn down all these high places. Now he's playing on Hezekiah's conscience. He's, he's trying to manipulate him. Hezekiah thought what he was doing was right. He thought that tearing down all these high places was the right thing to do. But certainly it would have been very unpopular. Anytime you get rid of somebody else's idols, they do not like you very much. And so Hezekiah would have, would have been facing resistance. People would have said, Hezekiah is anti-religious. He's tearing down all these different places of worship. We, we resist what Hezekiah is doing. Now the king of Assyria comes and says, your God sent me to you because you've done this. I have to think, at least a shred of doubt and wonder might have pierced Hezekiah's conscience. He says, give up hope. Give up hope. You can, you can almost... You can almost hear them taunting. Give it up, Hezzy. The game's up. There's nowhere to go from here. Just come on out. Come on out and we'll see if we can talk to the big guy on your behalf. And save you maybe from death or at least from humiliation. What will Hezekiah do? His faith failed the last time. What will he do this time? Well, we'll have to wait until chapter 19 to see how he responds. But the next speech is given beyond Hezekiah. He Hezekiah doesn't give any response, and so the Assyrians go right over his head to the people who are sitting on the wall. And they know good and well that those people sitting on the wall are not going to keep quiet. Every word that's said is going to spread through the city like wildfire. And they give a speech to these people. And this, again, is this is psychological warfare at its best. They... They play on the fears of the people living in Jerusalem. 
Because again, the Assyrians were, were brutal, brutal, brutal people. They would do things like this. And if you have a queasy stomach, you can plug your ears. They would do things like this. They would, they would besiege one city and they would capture it. And they would take people and they would cut their skin off them while they were alive. They'd pile up all these skins. They'd put them in carts. They'd bring them to the next city that they wanted to surrender. And they would start catapulting these human skins over the walls to tell them, if you don't surrender, we'll do this to you. I would think that would be rather effective in many cases. And so the Assyrians come and they begin to manipulate these fears and they give a speech. And the very clear, the very clear thrust of this speech is, don't trust Hezekiah. Don't listen to him. Don't believe him. Don't hear what he says. Don't follow him. Leave him behind and come for us. It will be much better for you if you desert Hezekiah. Come out of the gates and come by us. They threaten as well. They threaten not only that they'll do these terrible things, but they threaten a siege. A siege is where you surround a city and you don't let anybody in and nobody goes out and you just wait for the city to starve to death. That's the reference there about eating your own filth. When you're besieged for years and years and years, you'll eat anything you can find to eat. You say, this is what's going to happen to you unless you surrender. But if you surrender, if you surrender, you'll get fields, vineyards, and olive groves. And we'll move you to a different country, but it's going to be a great country just like this one. If you'll just come out, you can avoid all these terrible things happening to you. Your king can't take care of you. But we can take good care of you. Oh, wouldn't that have been tempting? You're surrounded. You have seemingly no hope. Your king is holed up in his palace. That would have been tempting. It was a lie, of course. The Assyrians never treated their conquered peoples with anything remotely resembling generosity or kindness. But it would have been a very tempting lie. Just like the lie the serpent told Adam and Eve in the garden. Eat the fruit and you will be like God. That was a tempting lie. Or the lie the same devil told to Jesus when Jesus was out in the wilderness starving. You go to Luke chapter 4 for a familiar story. The devil took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. That would be tempting. Because Jesus knows that what, what lingers for him is hanging on a tree outside the city, writhing, humiliated, and dying. That's a tempting lie. It would have been tempting. They were all lies. Adam and Eve didn't become like God, at least not in the sense that they desired. Jesus wouldn't have received the kingdoms of the earth like Satan had promised. And the Israelites or the people of Jerusalem certainly wouldn't have received the things that the Assyrians promised, but it most certainly would have been a tempting offer nonetheless. And tempting all the more because there was at least a sliver of truth in everything they were saying, with the one exception. They were right in saying that the Egyptians could not save Jerusalem. The Egyptians tried and they failed. They were right in saying that the army couldn't save Jerusalem. There was hardly any army left. They were right in saying that Hezekiah couldn't save Jerusalem. Hezekiah could not save Jerusalem. And they were right in this as well. They pointed out that all the other nations, all the other gods had failed to save their people. But 
they made one huge mistake. They assumed that Israel's God was just like all the other gods. They stepped over that big, thick, red line of death, and they underestimated our God's ability to save his people from all their enemies. And so with this mistake, they would eventually meet their downfall. But read this again with me, the second part of verse 32 to verse 35. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for he is misleading you when he says the Lord will deliver us. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpeth? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim, Hena, and Ephah? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries has been able to save his land from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? To the average onlooker, this would have seemed very logical. None of the other gods could do it. Why would this country, this small, lonely, isolated country, why would their god be any different? But it's different for one simple reason. All the gods of the nations are idols. But David's god, Abraham's god, and our god lives. And he has all the power to save whomever he wants, whenever he wants, and he wanted to save Jerusalem. The same praise God as he wants to save us. But put yourself inside Jerusalem's walls. You look out and you see hundreds of thousands of grizzled veteran Assyrian troops. You're staring a siege and starvation right in the face. You can list off dozens and dozens of other cities and countries which have already been destroyed. You're sitting there and you, you hear the offer of vineyards and olive groves and fields and wine and luxury. What do you do? What would you do if you were in that same situation? There's a lot of things that we can learn from church history. And I was thinking about this, I was reminded of uh, an instance from the time of the Reformation. It was the time of the Reformation in, in England. And the Reformation was going quite well at this time. And it's about a man named Thomas Cranmer. Thomas Cranmer was the man who wrote the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. And he was a, a Protestant. He was a reformer. The Reformation was going quite well. Henry VIII had started it. That was the guy with six wives. He was kind of a sketchy character. But his son, Edward, became king. And Edward was a humble, pious, devout Protestant. And when Edward became king, everything went well for the Protestants. They, they preached the gospel. People were converted. They enjoyed the favor of the king and of the government. Everything was going well. The problem was Edward was a very sick guy, and he died just six years into his term. And then his half-sister, Mary, became queen. Mary was a vicious, militant Catholic. And she declared war on Protestantism. Anybody who would preach it was to be destroyed. And so... Thomas Cranmer, who had been the Archbishop of Canterbury, was stripped of his office, arrested, and thrown in prison in the Tower of London. Then he was given this offer. John Fox, the man who wrote the famous book, uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs, he, he tells the story of Cranmer in some depth, and he says that, that the enemies of the Reformation came to Cranmer and said, you will receive back your office and your glory. You will receive the favor of the queen 
and you will save your life if you will just sign this little piece of paper that we have here and sign this public statement. And just a small part of that statement reads like this. I, Thomas Cranmer, late Archbishop of Canterbury, do renounce, hate, and detest all manner of heresies and errors of Luther and Zwingli, and all their teachings which are contrary to sound and true doctrine. I believe most constantly in my heart and with my mouth I confess one holy and Roman Catholic Church visible, without which there is no salvation. The author was plain. The offer was clear. Renounce faith in the gospel of Christ and live. Don't and you will die. Like the king of Assyria says, choose life, not death. What would you do? What would you do if you were him? He knew what was going to happen. His friends, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, had just been burned at the stake in just outside the Tower of London. What would you do if you were him? I'll tell you what he did, but I'm not going to tell you today. I'll tell you in two weeks when we're back. This is a cliffhanger sermon. You'll have to come back. Visitors, I'm sorry if you're not planning to come back. You can make an exception and you can come back. The story isn't finished. The story isn't finished here either. When you come to the end of chapter 18, the story is not finished. It's a bit of a cliffhanger. Everybody is quiet. The Assyrians have had their say. The people on the wall, the officials, they've gone back to Hezekiah and they've told their story. Hezekiah doesn't say a word. The people in Jerusalem are quiet. They've been told not to speak by their king and they obey. Everybody waits and we wait with them until the next time to see what happens next. But what would you do? You go running out those gates, wanting to take up the offer of the vineyards and the fields and the olive groves and the life. Do you sign the document saying that you renounce the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or do you hold fast to the Lord no matter what the cost, come what may? Do you trust that it is better to have your skin cut off of you while you are alive and have God than keep your skin and not have him? Or do you trust that it is better to be burned at the stake and have the gospel than recant the gospel, reject Christ, and have your life? What do you do? Do you trust God that it is better to be the one who is godly with grace and to be the one who is not. Now Hezekiah was, was a godly king. The people of Jerusalem at the time were godly reformed people. Thomas Cranmer was a godly man. Nowhere in the scriptures does God promise that bad things, even terribly bad things, won't happen to good people. Jesus, the Son of God, was impaled on a stake outside the very city which Sennacherib besieged in Hezekiah's day. If it can happen to him, it can happen to anybody. And if it did happen to you, what would you do? Would you truly, in that moment, in searching your heart of hearts, would you believe that it is better to have God and nothing else than to have everything else and not have Him? Because it's true, you know. It is better to have God and nothing else. 
But it takes faith to believe that's true. And it takes faith to act on it when push comes to shove. So may God give us grace to do exactly that. Cling to God in faith, even when the world seems to be crashing in on our heads. Let's pray. God, we ask, humbly knowing our own hearts, that we, like Hezekiah, at least even the best of us, that we have a mixture of faith and faithlessness inside of ourselves. That we believe, but we need help for our unbelief. And we know that certainly Hezekiah was not the only one who had a mixture of faith and fear. We see the example of Peter. Mighty in faith, fear. The rock on whom you would build your church. And yet, when the moment came, faith gave way to fear for him. And if even for the chief of the apostles, then who are we to think it would not be for us? Look, all we pray that it wouldn't be. We pray that we would have a faith which stands even the greatest of trials. That we, with countless thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions of others before us, that we would lose our lives before we would lose Christ. And God, for this to happen, we have to be willing to cut away every idol and leave behind every other thing in our heart and to have you as the chief treasure. We hear the parable of the hidden treasure ringing in our ears. The man who went digging found the treasure, sold everything he had to have that. By that field. Lord, we desire to have your kingdom. And we pray that you would enrich and enliven that desire all the more that we are willing to put every idol to death. We are willing to leave everything behind to follow Christ and then to have his joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.